0: This first hour will be part of a longer three-hour seminar that I present quarterly to a large group of people kind of in the medium range of wine engagement. Uh, We talk about a good amount on the agricultural side, grape varietals, how does a winery operate, what is bottling like, and eventually we get into topics about aroma, taste descriptors, how do we use language, and eventually into food pairings and some things like that. This first part will focus mostly on a general overview, kind of historically locating everything, and then a bit on the viticulture and enology side just to give everyone a clear understanding of some of the challenges and getting a decent wine into the bottle. We hope you enjoy it and the next episode will continue with the middle section. <laughs>
1: Pietro Butita, he's going to be your um, speaker instructor today, uh, introduction to wine um, appreciation and wine tasting and more. Uh, he is um, one of a family of, uh, he is actually the winemaker for a family winery here we'll be visiting on Thursday for de Oro, and um, he works with those Italian rivals a bit more. He also has a, a great little tasting room in, in um, Oakland, California. and. Um, if you ever get to that area, I'd recommend you visit it. It's a quaint little tasting room, and you have an, even more unusual wine varietals. There. Yeah, we have
0: some pretty obscure obscure stuff. Yeah.
1: So he's extremely knowledgeable in uh, the subject. Uh, and He's uh, a sommelier as well, and a uh, chef. So he has, um, pick his, well, I could say you could pick his brain for a food and wine suggestions, but we'll talk about that We'll try later to get to that, yeah. This morning. Um, um, and if it gets too technical, you can ask questions to help, you know, bring it to your level, <laughs> you know, yeah. so to speak. But um, he has a great, a lot of knowledge and uh, respect to what he knows and what, what we're going to learn today. And water's coming on your table so that you can rinse when you need to. And again, um, feel free. he uh, will tell you also to go ahead and pour your wines out after a taste or two, or you can drink it all if you want to. So, he'll um, take you through different um, aspects of the different wines that you'd be tasting and and be able to kind of help educate you on how to determine, you know, different components of the different grapes and so on. All right. Thank you, Pete.
0: Thank you, everybody, for being here today. Um, A lot of different topics we'll kind of glance over uh, from taste and smell. uh, grape varietals. We'll go over a little bit of viticulture, even though I think you'll get more of that on Wednesday or Thursday. And some winery process stuff. Uh, then we'll talk about how your nose works, how your palate works, again, with some food pairing. Uh, I'm sure there will be lots of side information to like what I think are great $15 bottles you can find at the store that are interesting. Um, any questions, just shout them out. I think that is the best way to really cover the most ground in the least amount of time. Uh, you should have a presentation in front of you. It diverges a little bit from what's up here. We added a little section uh, that we'll all go over in the first hour just on basic vineyard and winery practices. Um, and if anybody has any questions about that, we can either get really technical or just keep it really fast and simple. So. Uh, there are two additional sheets on the back that are pretty interesting. One is the color wheel, which is the aroma red wine aroma wheel. There are all sorts of these different wheels now. There's a milk wheel, a tequila wheel. Uh, everything you can think of has a wheel, IPA wheel. Um, Basically, if it's a liquid or a semi-solid, there's a wheel for it.
2: Um,
0: But it's a really handy tool for getting comfortable in using wine descriptors. I know sometimes somebody asks you, hey, what do you smell of this glass? It's sort of like a blank slate of, I don't know. And I'm right there with you still after lots of years of doing this. But it's kind of fun to be able to group things into, you know, strawberry, cranberry, raspberry, blackberry. They're all slightly different shades of nuance that that have some meaning when you're describing things. And we'll talk a little bit about using those descriptors, too. So, uh, it's a fun thing to hang on to. You can find them on the internet really easily. Um, and they're a great party tool, as well. Uh, the other sheet is the sommelier, uh, what we call the grid. Um, this is basically the order that a certified sommelier, if that's meaningful, uh, will go through in describing a particular wine. They'll click through each of these lines, body, flavor, viscosity, uh, oak, all of these little descriptors. So if, if you ever wonder like, you know, what can be described in a wine, here are 29 lines of little subsets Some of them aren't super important, Uh you know, clarity, is that really meaningful or not? Well, it depends on the wine and the style. Um, But other ones, you know, is there oak? Uh, What's the age like? Those are pretty interesting things to pay attention to. And the more you hone in on those, the easier it is to pick those up. Um, And if you're interested in really learning more about wine, honestly, the best way is just to taste a lot of wine. (laughs) Doesn't mean you have to swallow all the wine, but you're welcome to. But developing that mental Rolodex and just sort of the comfort level with, not even, you don't even have to verbalize things, but when you taste something, putting it into language somehow helps articulate it back and forth with the brain. So it's like studying a foreign language. There's a little bit of practice in there. Um, And over time, it gets easier and easier. And we all are born with innate taste preferences. Some people, I'll I'll show a little uh, grid on the next slide, some of us are born very sensitive to bitter compounds, some of us are very sensitive to acidity, and you gotta remember there is a good amount of acid in wine. It basically ranges from orange juice minus sugar to lemon. Some of those German Rieslings and really cool climate things are a similar pH and uh, it's something with no sugar in it. So it's pretty magical that you can even tolerate drinking half or something like that. Um, some of us, though, are just born with palates that are more sensitive to a component. Uh, some people are also really sensitive to alcohol. Yeah, tactile-wise, um, body's a whole different thing. Um, I'm actually very, I have trouble breaking alcohol down in my body. So as I age, I'm able, I, I'm down to like, uh, a one glass, slightly plus date, which is very cheap, unfortunately. <laughs> it's a great injustice. My palate's better than ever, but I can't drink that much because I'm missing an enzyme in my body. It's changing. so That happens, too. Um, but there's some wiggle room in all of that. And as you know, most of us, I certainly, I hated mushrooms till I was 23. I hated cilantro. Things like that. Um, the scientists that are working on flavor and tongue receptors and how that works with the brain, they're realizing that there's a lot of, I guess, neuroplasticity in there, that you can retrain the brain, you can retrain, It's not even conscious retraining sometimes, but that interaction between what you sense and how you process the information, that changes over time. So if you are really sensitive to high acidity wines, and you're interested in maybe exploring the larger world of cool climate, higher acid wines, just kind of dip your toe in every now and then. and But work on really kind of paying attention to the wine and sort of interacting with it. How is it, it affecting you? Uh, palate feel is a big topic that doesn't get discussed much, and we'll go into that a little bit more. But especially acidity, um, it's a very particular feeling. You may be able to sort of Graduate into higher acid wines over the period of time. Some of us will just never get past what we have biologically. And that's okay too. So some people will always need to drink sweet wines because they're very sensitive to bitterness. And sugar is the only thing that really helps with that. So if you're drinking black coffee all the time, and oversteep tea, and drinking tequila, that's probably not your problem. But about 20% of the population is always going to be super sensitive to it. And bitterness is really complex as well. I think there are... Okay, last last time I said there were 14 different type of bitterness receptors going all the way down your throat. I think now the count is 20. So, and they're all... It's actually one of the more diverse flavor things out there. So, there's some wiggle room. Push the boundaries. Learn about wine. But don't make yourself miserable drinking wine. That destroys the whole purpose. Um, And part of the wine thing, when you get into it, really is the context and, you know, what does it look like in Rioja? Where, these things that you're trying, what does the Douro region in Portugal look like that this amazing wine just came from? (coughs) Or even California, when you've been to Napa Valley, and you've driven up and down the valley and this is rutherford this is saint elena and you can tell it's getting hotter up to calistoga and the valley kind of goes like this things start to make sense in a different way than they did before and you start sort of linking those things to wine i, re- I really think that's part of the fun um, i haven't had the chance to do a whole lot of european travel to see things but i've been assured by every single person that's gone once you've gone to a wine area it makes more sense and especially if you've sampled food from the area too and then start making links, and it all sort of clicks together. Uh, One thing we will talk about, though, is the kind of wines we drink today that we can easily buy for $10 at the grocery store, CVS, wherever. That's a pretty new phenomenon. Uh, If we were going to the grocery store, and I'm not, I'm dating myself a little bit but I believe back in 1958, three out of every four bottles that were sold were sweet wines.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think
0: 35% were labeled California Madeira. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd cook it in big vats and mm-hmm. add some sugar back and filter it. And mm-hmm. Our taste, the, the wine culture we live in now is more diverse than it ever has been. And there are very few wines out there with defects bad corks, you know, mm-hmm. they used to use a lot of sulfur in wine, the chemistry was kind of out on that, bottling was difficult, um, you're really not going to get bad bottles of wine like you used to, but you can get a lot of boring bottles of wine, so there's a trade-off there, and that's where it's sort of knowing history and context, and why am I paying $30 for this instead of 10 those things should all make sense, and they reinforce it. Context, context, and history is important too. I really can't stress that enough. I find, I'm fascinated by it myself. Making wine goes back a long way. Armenian caves, uh, Cab Franc seeds, I think have been dated to 3000 BC. It's one of the primal ancestor grapes. Um, you of course had Greeks and Romans, Romans in particular in Europe, discovered grapes. Cab Franc was there, Pinot Noir was there, these ancient varietals already existed then sort of helped spread them, and move them <coughs> across areas. Interesting to think about though, because grapes are, they interbreed, they, some are more prone to uh, sort of crazy offshoots than others. So Pinot Noir is very unstable, so then you have Pinot Blanc and Pinot Gris and other things that came from it, like a Ligate that you don't see very often. And then there are thousands of grape varieties, we will never see again that have gone extinct, that were a pollinated grapevine in somebody's vineyard somewhere in the middle of France that was there and is wrong, so. There's a lot still to be discovered, though, thankfully. Um, But as far as spreading wine, you had your first experience of bubbles, 1700s, 1800s. Uh, I'm sure everybody's a little bit familiar with Burgundy, very expensive (coughs) game to get into, but a small area focused on just a few grapes, medieval monks drinking a lot of wine, taking a lot of notes, and really dissecting land for hundreds and hundreds of years, and figuring out this soil is slightly different than this soil ten feet away, and actually making that work. Pretty fascinating story. Mm -hmm. Um, The Spanish did a lot. To move grape vines around and brought it to the New World, basically. Um, you've probably heard of the Mission grape. Keep in mind, going back to you know wine in the 1960s and 70s, a lot of the wine people were buying was still Mission and Table grapes. Mixed into wine. So this whole like Cabernet Sauvignon and Pinot world—it's only the last 50 years. There was virtually no Chardonnay in California thirty years ago, so it changes a lot. It changes fast. Hopefully for the better. Um, but it's good to be good to be conscious of where it came from. There are two events, though, that really do still have some <laughs> importance today. Phylloxera, uh, this term right here, it's a root louse that grows underground and it feeds on grapevine roots, and it decimated the wine industry in the late 1800s. Curious part was that uh, some American grapevines were resistant to it naturally, their roots. And somebody discovered how to graft the vines, the top part, the clone that grows out of the ground, onto American roots that were phylloxera resistant. So had to replant everything on these new grafted grapevines, that was a chance to really change the mixture of grapes we were growing. In Europe, because some of the grapevines from here went back to France, and then infected France, and then Italy, and then Spain, and decimated pretty much anything that wasn't grown in sand, because the the little bugs, they they can't exist in the sand. There are some home-rooted vineyards in certain sandy places that don't have those two-part grapevines. Actually, a lot of Washington is sand very sandy soil, and those grapevines aren't grafted either. There's a whole discussion about whether or not that changes the nature of the grape or the wine.
2: Um,
0: But when that happened, there were some areas like the Rhone region, if you're familiar with that, southeastern France, warmer area, kind of California-ish wines. When that decimated everything there, they replanted it with a different main grape. So, pre phylloxera, most Rhone wines were Morvedra-based. post phylloxera, Grenache produced a lot more, a lot easily, was cheaper, twice the crop, and it became 70% Grenache. So disease changed the wine, and the history and the trajectory of that area, so fascinating stuff. Uh, Morvedra was a very common grapevine in California, uh, up through the 1900s, and then it It's hard to find now. It's coming back in popularity, but it, the disease really changed the landscape here as well, as far as grape varieties are concerned. Uh, Prohibition, of course, had a big effect also, and it affected Lake County here. There was a fair amount of grapes grown here. Uh, Not many, I don't, do you know how old catfish vineyard is? That's post-Prohibition, right? Like 1950s? Yeah guess no vineyard survived here. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes, if you drive through Sonoma Valley in uh, Sonoma County, two two hours south of here, there are vineyards going back to the 1880s that survived. Sometimes those grapes went to uh, Sacramento wine, things like that, or they were kept in production for shipping like bricks of compressed grapes to the east coast. would have notes on them, do not add yeast, and do not ferment, or alcohol may result. There were a couple secondary industries that developed from it, but it, probably 90% of vineyards were ripped up, planted to walnut trees is a big one, fruits, things like that, pears. Uh And phylloxera came back also in Napa Valley in the 80s. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, not that long ago. So if you drive through Napa right now, you will actually see a lot of vineyard blocks being pulled out in big piles of vines. Um, at the 25, 25-ish, 30-year mark, vineyards start to drop in production, and that's when your accountant says it's time to replant. It's a very expensive land. You've got to keep something in production. You know, that's That's leaving money on the table. So there's sort of this cycle of replanting at the same time while we're realizing that old vines <coughs> make really good wine, and they're part of the history and heritage. How
2: long you take a new vine? to it? Uh,
0: You can, it's an interesting question. Um, you can get grapes the fourth year, maybe a full crop by the sixth year. Some are more vigorous than others, in some sites, like a steep hillside that's very rocky, it's gonna be 10 years until you get like a real canopy and a, vascular infrastructure to get a real crop. Valley floor, something like Grenache that produces a ton. In five years you can get something. Quality may or may not be there. There are some grapes that actually do really well with young vines. Mm-hmm. Um, has anybody heard of Screaming Eagle? It's one of the most expensive Napa about, probably still is actually. Uh, the first edition of Screaming Eagle, which I think was like 1995, that got a hundred points, and this whole Napa Valley thing. Those vines were five years old. Oh, you. So, who would have thought? So, it, it can go either way, but if you're planting a vineyard, it's think of it as a four or five year investment.
1: So, has that continued? The hundred points that they got on you, on the young Oh, ones?
0: I think it varies a little bit okay. now, but they, it's still... I don't know what the, what a bottle costs twelve hundred dollars. I can't even imagine what getting on that email list looks like. So it's it's more of a transactional triumph, than <laughs> I assume. There are some really good forty dollar Napa cabs. I don't know that you need to spend twelve hundred, but if your friend wants to, I would encourage them.
2: There's nothing wrong with that. And. I'm,
0: mention, because it sounds like there are only a couple Californians here, as a Californian I am woefully ignorant of great history elsewhere I know that certainly Ohio Valley um, Jefferson was bringing back cuttings, I don't think historically much came out of that, but I've had Nebbiolo from several different states now, that has been pretty amazing then you have all the hybrids in the north the cold hardy which are fascinating, Like they taste completely different palette spectrum than what we're used to here in California. Um, So I don't mean to just say like California, California, because what was going on out there predated 1849 California when people first started coming out. But it did become the powerhouse it is today. We're in California, so yeah, I, I do need to educate myself, and it's really hard for us to find wines from Virginia out here and other places. I would love to see A wine bar or like little nooks that are kind of specializing in other areas. There's a lot going on. Mm -hmm. I know a few consulting winemakers who are going to different states and learning a lot and Mm -hmm. Texas is really coming on strong. A lot of different places out there. Mm -hmm. Humidity is a challenge in some of those states. Uh, The big problem with grapevines is mildew. That's sort of Mm -hmm. pest pressure number one. It's just it's something that's always there. And in high high humidity, becomes really difficult to deal with. So, but I know everybody's trying. I believe there's a vineyard, or at least one well, vineyard, out in Hawaii as well, and just all over. I think every state has something in production, which is amazing. Um, just running back to California history, though, uh, Napa, mm-hmm. Sonoma County, famous yada, yada, yada. But like out near San Jose, Gilroy, Santa Clara Valley, those were huge epicenters of grape production 1870, 1880, 1890. It happened really fast and it blew up. Uh, L.A. was what the largest vineyard in the world, continuous, in 1890. Uh, There there was, uh, I forget what the grapevine company was called in 1900, but it was the largest producer in the world. Uh, They had something else down in L.A. called Pierce's disease, which wiped out almost all grape production back then. So they had sort of a different pest pressure deal than we have to worry about. We basically have it really good up here. Weather is moderate. There's enough rainfall. Lake County doesn't have that much mildew pressure because it gets hot really fast. We get good wind. Um, It's a pretty easy place to grow good grapes. So it just takes a long time to figure out how to grow great grapes. And wine styles have changed over time. There was, in 1900s, like, lighter-bodied wines were the style. Things like Nebbiolo and uh, Clarets, which were quite light Bordeaux blends. It's all the rage. The big, bold, you know, like, almost sticky monster wines. Pretty new phenomenon. There were some of those from some warmer climate areas. Spain could produce things like that. But it wasn't commonplace. And then post-prohibition, we had the sweet wine boom and have a wine culture that fell apart and then was building itself back together. 70s and 80s things started really happening and then today I'll just mention that there's a new category of wine which is not very well delineated called natural wine which is developed in the Beaujolais region of France which has become really industrialized. It's sort of a de-industrialized model of wine so like no cultured yeast Less use of certain inputs, no filtering, um, just more like, you know, there are some great things about it. Um, less manipulation is the general theme, like more pure expression of wine. It's a great idea. There are some really cool natural wines out there, um, there are some really terrible natural wines out there as well. It is a huge spectrum. If you ever end up someplace that has some natural wines on the menu, give them a try. Uh, they can be really interesting. Another tradition that's become part of the natural wine thing is how they used to make wine in Georgia, where they'd bury it in big amphora, and then dig it up six months later, really big tannic wines. Uh, if you orange wine refers to the color of white grapes that have been mass- made like a red wine, so they take on an orange hue. They don't they're not really this color they're much much darker really interesting flavor spectrum lots of cardamom and lemon peel and baked citrus and all sorts of crazy stuff they're fantastic uh, definitely give them a try if you see them you can find cool bottles for twenty bucks now It's become a lot more is being imported falls under the natural wine umbrella sometimes uh, but really interesting stuff there's a lot of industrial wine out there this is sort of the, the response to that. Me, I'm somewhere in between. So. I think most of us are. I don't think any of us really like the idea of industrial wine in giant silos, but it has its place. Sometimes we need a cheap bottle of wine that tastes decent. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, getting to wine language though, and this this is difficult. It's still, I hate being put on the spot. I've been in the business eleven solid years now. And when somebody hands me a glass and quizzes me, like, what do you think it is? I still sort of freeze up, like, oh, Jesus <laughs> You know, where taking that first step is so difficult. Um, and blind tasting wines, like, you know, I think it's a seven-year-old Pinot from Willamette Valley. Like, that's a very particular strain of wine aficionado. You don't have to go there, but if you can, it is a great parlor trick but it also means you've developed a lot of background knowledge to draw from. So if you aspire to that, pursue it. It's very cool, Uh, but it takes a long time to get there. Nothing wrong with that. But using the words helps. You gotta get comfortable with descriptors. And it's just a system of similes, metaphors, whatever. I think it's pretty easy to say, this wine smells like a banana, and here's a banana like that's not particularly challenging uh, oftentimes like texture can be really different like what what's the shape in the mouth is it round or is it triangular is it you know those sort of questions are a little more fuzzy those are probably the most rewarding and the hardest to really discuss so somebody asked me recently like what do you want the Sangiovese you make to feel like well, I want the entry to be like a laser beam and then I want it to unfold into like ten dimensions and then compress back into a more yeah, it's like I don't know how how important or helpful that is, but there's something to being able to describe something like that, and don't forget the tactile part, that's the one thing about those cheaper wines, they're usually less interesting, they're more food wines, you know, you drink them down with dinner and they're nice and bright and Fun and satisfying, but there's not a whole lot to really dive into in there and really explore. The More expensive stuff, storied regions that have been doing something for a couple hundred years. That's where it gets interesting. Yeah.
2: So I noticed, just in general, as I've gotten older, my my ability to taste flavors has changed. Mm-hmm. And so, do you do you find that with wines as well? Do you think it's changed
0: or Gotten worse. I really worse.
2: think it, it's gotten worse. Yes. I mean, I, it's gotten more bland. I can't discriminate uh, as easily between I, flavors. I, I think. I don't know if it's I, just me or if it's well, s- mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Science says, uh, yeah, just over time that, that sort of taste bud yeah. sensitivity is going to go down. I think, though, that your mental processing goes up. Mm-hmm. I think you mm-hmm. get more out of less with the wine if you're sort of flexing that muscle and paying attention to what you're and pay attention to what you're eating too. Like we've, we forget about, or I forget about uh, We don't sit around the table and ask what the broccoli tastes like. But you should. And we did that just last, my girlfriend and I did that last night. And that's, there's something to that. Um, well,
2: what did the broccoli well <laughs> that's that's
0: see that's the easy thing to get into. Wine tastes like wine, chicken tastes like chicken. But we all know that those amazing yellow fat chickens you saw in Italy that are a different species and fed different food are different than the dollar ninety nine stuff at safe. Mm-hmm. And broccoli they're like wine. There are many, many different varietals. Was it picked early for shipping? Was it sandy soil? Sandy soil, you're gonna get more aromatics, like a lighter grain feel on the palate. Was it clay soil? Those things start to, they're in there. Those fine grain differentiations are in there. So I just need to practice. I think practice just, is the But On and the, the other hand, sometimes somewhere. medications you take um, or can yeah. really affect your palate, and too. the context too. If there's noise going on, and you know, I know. I can't do professional tastings when I'm, like, stressed out, had a bad night's sleep. Like, it takes a lot of focus and mental acuity to really, like, parse things apart. It's exhausting to you know, do a judging with 51s and try to really go through the whole, the whole spiel with that. It takes some work. But I think, I know in my family, or maybe general food culture in the U.S., it's Not these aren't discussions we ever had. Food is fuel. For me today, 75 proof, right now, harvest time, 90% of the time, food is fuel. I'm not thinking about it. I'm just slamming it down my throat and getting out in the field as fast as possible. That's not the way it should always be. You shouldn't necessarily dissect every ham and cheese sandwich that you eat. But I think being aware of it around the periphery, just, it wasn't something at least for me that I experienced in my food education and culture and even becoming a chef and then becoming a sous chef and then an executive chef we weren't very we would talk about balance we talked about does it need more salt does it need a little acid to pop it up um, if it needs acid does it need bright rice vinegar verju or champagne vinegar which are very bright citric top of or does it need like more earthy Sherry vinegar, something wood aged. Does it need balsamic? Does it need like savory middle core building umami soy ish flavors? Like sometimes you could not all chefs even like chefs chefs think about things in those ways. It took me a while just to even think about the food I was making in those terms. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm doing wine it kind of changes the whole game because if anything, it's almost getting too fine-grained, with like, well, I don't want it to be cloying, but I want to, you know, the food can be properly seasoned on its own, but when you put it next to the wine, which one is rising to the top? Do you want to subdue the food a little bit so that this amazing bottle of wine can really shine against a neutral canvas? Or is it kind of a tart, unripe wine and you need to cover it up with salty food and having some fats layered in there and things like that? So. Yeah, I mean, you, you can go as deep <laughs> as you want into it, but, but I think you don't have to always be yeah, thinking about, stuff. yeah, exactly, and there is some point where it's like, is this fun anymore? Yeah. So, for me, yeah, but that's my personality, that's not going to work for the more hedonistic like, you know, pour it all over me. <laughs> okay, that's not what I meant. Oh. Like, everybody has a thing. Um, <laughs> Somewhere in there is the happy medium. Right? So, but yeah, I think the antidote to changing or feeling like things are changing is just working on the mental aspect. Um, Pay I'm, attention. Yeah, I've noticed, mm-hmm. like, I can't eat spicy food anymore. I have certain allergies that are coming up as I get older. It's bugging me. I can't just go eat Indian lunch buffet anymore and be happy and healthy three hours later. <laughs> and I used to all the time. So it, it happens. I think it's the mental muscle that's the most important part, and yeah, language is a good way to work the mental muscle and just kind of fleshing out the earlier part of talking about people sensitive to bitterness, alcohol, you can think and this is sort of an old chart it's splintering into way more groups and subgroups here, but um, there were these four types of tasters that were identified with a bunch of different scientists. Nomenclature is kind of. Not ideal. Uh, but the most sensitive are called the sweet group. You'll notice that there's a preponderance of women there, like three times more women than men. So there are all these anthropological theories, like I need to taste my food carefully to keep my children safe. Okay, whatever. Um, but there is something to women having more delicate palates in some, some sense. Uh, so the sweet tasters, those are the people who are really sensitive towards bitterness. And if the alcohol gets like above 14%, which is sort of the new normal, it used to be a little bit lower, um, then the wine's very hot, very acrid, kind of burning. These are people who definitely are not gonna be drinking shots. (laughs) Kind of need delicacy. Wine is generally kind of, you know, it's it's an acidic beverage. It's challenging on its own. Um, there's a theory that you know, that a lot of the Muscat drinkers, people who don't really like wine, it's because they're in this group that they just don't know. I don't know. Some people just don't like different things. It's hard to say. The brain's in the way. These two categories, hypersensitive and sensitive, are the good groups to be in. Um, hypersensitive, maybe you're not doing so much super spicy food, or cocktails are okay, maybe some super aged whiskey that's a little bit, but it's, you know, you're still pretty sensitive, um, but there's also a good general acceptance to things, and you can explore around the edges, try different food cultures, different wine styles, you can drink a sweet wine, you can drink a port wine, something with high alcohol, a little bitterness is okay. Sensitive is, yeah, just kind of all over the board. Um, they're... I think they can, with the brain portion, if you're serious about one, you kind of end up in that hypersensitive category. I think you kind of jump a rung on the ladder. I should mention this is not aspirational at all.
2: If anything, like
0: being down here is the easiest place to be. You might just need more salt and hot sauce on those things. <laughs> but anything goes. I mean, it's, it's a cheaper game to play and there's a lot of fun to be had there. So all of us, I don't think this is literally correct. I don't think there are boundaries, but we're all somewhere, in theory, on the spectrum. So, Just a way to think about it, mainly if you feel like you're s- struggling with wine, or if you feel like you're more sensitive to things than your neighbor. Um, I know just tasting with other people, there are certain smells and certain sensations that the other person just will not pick up on just sit there and spend five minutes trying to explain like a bur- rubber bitterness or I get cardamom in this and the other person will just be like I don't get it we're tasting the same wine they have just as many articulate things to say about it just don't get it sometimes we're missing a gene or an enzyme or something like that and so there isn't really a right or wrong uh, yeah it's just diving <clears> in is the <throat> best way uh, I'm just going to take a quick tour through the vineyard and the winery operations. Uh, a friend of mine who wrote a book called Postmodern Wine Making. It's, it's a fun read if you're feeling like geeking out a little bit. Um, this is his mandala, for lack of a better term, of the life cycle of a wine, uh, all the way to developing in bottle, to the seasonal changes, thinking like basically two years from picking the grapes to getting a big red out in a bottle. That's a lot of time for things to happen. Um, And there are lots of things you want to be careful with along the way. Little notes that probably aren't relevant, like cellar hygiene audit. Those are important to us, but the general idea though is just keep in mind that wine is like fancy cheese. It's always evolving. It's not always linear, like once it's in the bottle, there are some grape varieties that are famous for going really mute and silent for years other ones like quick bottled Sauvignon Blanc, drink them in the first six months, they're made to be fresh and fun and light and you know uh big reds though they can they can do several different things so some of those expensive bottles can be underwhelming one night and three months later over the top. How do we know? How do we know? That's a good question. Um, Google is one option uh, generally generally with like bigger ripe reds, you know, California, Paso down south. They're going to be more ripe, more drinkable now, and then maybe they sort of age in a more linear trajectory. The the weird aging challenges for the most part come with more old world wines, like cooler climate Chablis and. Burgundy and those things that are like I have trouble getting into because I can't name all the Burgundy crews anymore or any of that stuff um, some of the cool, more serious cooler climate wines can be very like, and I don't know that there is a way to know um, and when somebody tells you oh yeah, don't drink it for five years I would be suspicious <laughs> just in general That's, you know, I was at a nap. the last time I was at a Napa winery I will tell you which one it was, but every wine a group of people tasted, like, how long should I of this? About oh, 20 years. How about this? 20 years. Like, every single wine, like, oh, 20, at least 20 years. Ah, I, I, I don't buy that. Um, but with aged wine, there is also, what are you aging it for? Are you aging it so the tannins will become soft, and it'll be very smooth in the mouth? If that's the case, then start with a low tannin wine that doesn't even as much age. Stop drinking Big Bold Cabernet and go to Merlot and Monopolciano and other rounder, more fleshy grapes. So there's sort of a, a discussion to be had with part of that, too. There are some... I'm actually a believer in... I like tannin. I don't like too much tannin, but I don't think that a wine made from tannic grapes should ever be smooth and not feel tannic. There's something to me about keeping the varietal typicity of the grape front and center so that's a good question though that comes (laughs) up all the time Um, there are some grapes like Alianico. a lot of chablis chardonnay takes like five years and then it does something weird and then it goes into mushroom and then it becomes beautiful and then it like I, I don't get I don't know but it seems consistent with the area and the vintage and now like vintages are getting weird because of weather hail, heat Mm -hmm. non-stop rain. I I don't even know what those vintage trucks are going to look like down the road. So It's it's a little bit of new territory. Um, Going back to the topic of planting a vineyard, it's a long-term project. I think if you're planting a vineyard and laying out a business plan and all of that, you're probably thinking of breaking even at like year 15. So, yeah, the what's the, the old song the, the best way to make a million in the wine industry is to start with a billion like it's, it's not really a revenue generating thing um, they pick, the places that do make money are people like Gallo that own thousands and thousands of acres of vineyard and it was in the family and everything's paid for and it's a production center So there are ways to do it There are little producers like me were able to survive that would have been very difficult 30 years ago so I'm, I'm happy about that. Um, and having a vineyard is a whole other world of headache, but it's a very, I spend most of my year in the vineyard. It's—it's it's part. It becomes part of the puzzle that's very hard to let go of if you're lucky enough to have it. So, and not every place is good for a vineyard. You'll be driving around here looking at hillsides saying, oh, I bet that might be a really, then you find out that it's all rock and there's only six inches of soil there and there's just no way. Um, But grapes are very adaptable. Uh, And you have lots of choices to make, for sure. Uh, Not just topography, is it accessible? Can you get workers to it? These days, most important, is there water? Can you dig a well? That's an issue. Um, Your well that works now may not work five years from now as well, since water tables change. And if your neighbor, there's a vineyard, small vineyard here, neighbors came in, planted all around, he doesn't have water anymore. Well, wasn't deep enough. the Tables dropping. So, things do happen. There are lots of choices if you want to plant Cabernet. There are certain things that Cabernet likes that Pinot Noir does not like, and vice versa. So, if you're in a cool place, maybe you have ocean influence. Maybe it's just farther north. Then you you first have to divide like: is it hot, warm, or cool climate? And each one has a world of grapes that'll work with that. Whites, there's a little bit more flexibility. Sometimes you can plant a white in a hotter zone and just harvest it earlier and get good wine. But it depends though. Uh, generally, if you're in a hot hot area, you want to plant things that are heat tolerant. It's just the first place to go. Uh, the roots below the ground, there are this is a topic of a lot of discussion. We kind of got into monoculture rootstock, like 80% of Napa is on one particular rootstock. Mm-hmm. And when you develop stuff in the soil and nematodes and things like that, suddenly you have a monocultural disaster in the making. Mm-hmm. So people are trying to diversify the rootstocks because there are things under the soil we have to be thinking about. And then the clone, the, the, the cutting that's you know grafted into the, the rootstock, if you go look at the Pinot Noir chart, I think there are 180 different Pinot clones. Some have bigger berries, some have smaller berries, some are darker, some are lighter, some more tannic, some ripen early, some ripen late. These things just, these little families of differences all evolved over time and they're all separated out into clone 223 and <coughs> wad and swill now. So Lots of variations there. Um, how close do you want to plant things? Old world, bad soil, they plant really, really close. That way, each grapevine doesn't have to ripen as much. Old California was mm-hmm. like here to the wall on a huge grid with these vines producing 10 tons per acre. Mm-hmm. So, and each one of those approaches has some virtue to it. So we have a mix in our vineyard: Some large spacing, and I planted things as close as four feet. So, waiting to see whether or not that was smart or not. Uh, Then there's the yearly cycle, are you cover cropping, pruning, trellising, lots of stuff to do. Uh, When it gets into actual grape growing though, it's actually really easy. I mean, it's not easy, but grapes compared to strawberries or apples, all you have to worry about with grapes for the most part in California, there are new, the Pierce's disease, which I mentioned earlier, like there are things you need to be constantly vigilant about. And you'll see traps placed everywhere in vineyards, and the ag people check those you know, every couple of weeks. And, um, but controlling mildew. And then there's white flies and then mites. And the white flies are pretty benign, they're just kind of there. Uh, mites can be pretty damaging. Um, then you get into do you want to spray to get rid of them, or do you want to seed other you know, ladybugs, or there are types of mites that eat the bad mites? and kind of work with the biology of the area. You know, are you planting grasses for native habitats, things like that, or is it you know, Central Valley just you know, down to bare earth and produce as much as fast as you can?
2: What percentage of the vineyards in this county are organic?
0: Do you know, Chris? Very
1: small. Yeah. very small.
0: Yeah, and that's mainly because a lot of us are using organic practices. But they you're either organic or you're not. you're either certified, certified. or an organic board, which takes several years and they rifle through your paperwork and it's a big thing. Um, we were certified organic at one point and it was such a headache we let it go. still farm the same, but we're not technically organic anymore. A lot of people do that. I don't think. For aspirational wine, like we want to make really good bottles of wine, I don't think anybody likes going out and s- spraying chemicals for the most part. It's not great for the workers. Uh, I think we all know it doesn't really work with the local biome. It's just changing those things is not ideal. A huge percentage is certified sustainable, That's which is. Between
2: sustainable yeah, sustainable
0: is a very soft, fuzzy, like proto organic. I think one of the more hardcore people explained to me like, "Oh, I used to smoke a pack a day, and now I only smoke half a day." So it depends on which side of the fence you're on. Um, And then there's something called biodynamic, which gets is sort of like organic, but also brings in a lot of moon phases and burying cow horns under the moonlight and then digging them up and doing stuff (laughs) like that. So yeah, it's wacky, but but good grapes. That's a, the market is always changing. The first round of organic stuff uh, when I was up here, the wines were badly made. People actually knew not to buy organic wine. Part of the problem is that the United States has horrible labeling ideas. Um, there's a difference between organic grapes and organic wine. Organic wine does not have sulfur added, which is a preservative and antioxidant. Organic grapes, you get these you know, grapes grown organically, and then you do whatever the hell you want to them. So you can get a more, <clears> that's worst case scenario. We don't really think about it like that. But stuff me with organic grapes was getting onto the shelf in good quality, age 20 months in French oak, blah, 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 all that stuff. You can't do that with wine, with no sulfur added to it. That's, that's the number one stability item that we use in the industry. And it works really well. Um, There's a small percentage of people that are very sulfur sensitive, and you know it. You know by the time you're 10, you can't eat a lot of nuts, you can't eat any dried food that are sulfur. There's naturally occurring sulfur in lots of different things. And our own bodies make a gram and a half a day. So it's, it's, you know for sure. Um, And those people should not be ingesting wine with sulfur. But that's like a fraction of a fraction of the population. So, but, flip side i mean i am based near berkeley so
2: i've
0: got the whole hippy dippy side as well a lot of science is still out on sulfur if you breathe sulfur you know it it burns out my nostrils you know it's powerful stuff so to think that we know everything that happens with it um, and this is one of the complaints i have with the natural wine world because it gets even more complicated where there's free sulfur and then bound sulfur like, does the body break apart the all sulfur into free? Like, those studies haven't been done yet. I don't know why. Um could get more, like, conclusive stuff. But there was an early movement against organic wine in the late, like, early 2000s, because it tasted bad. Because it was organic wine. It was, there were, there are a couple labels out there, like Fry from Mendocino. Um, they kind of have a system that they've been using for 20 years. It's all stain. I think it's all stainless still. Um, you can buy it in grocery stores. I think Safeway has it for like fifteen bucks. It's, it's a no sulfur added wine. And it's cool. I mean, I've had an article published on not using sulfur. Like it's a mainly for me just because it changes how the wine feels and tastes. It like it it takes a young poet and makes it a insurance salesman. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really, like, all the weird aromatics and kind of crazy off-the-wall stuff and freedom that the wine has. Like, when you dose it with sulfur, it goes yeah. and it takes a while for that to release. So, yeah, I, again, hard to put words to, but it does, uh, you've tasted barrel by barrel. I had sulfur to this one, not this one. They're different. It does something. And the way it interacts with us does something. So, But, Modern winemaking, because bottling is so much better, that's a huge one. We use inert gases like CO2 and argon now all the time. We're using probably a third the amount of sulfur that was used 50 years ago. I mean, it's gone down a lot. So, and that's not just us. That's Europe as well. Europe has slightly lower total sulfur guidelines. So sometimes, like these people always come in, like, they, they don't use sulfur. Like no science is the same everywhere. We're all bottling it pretty much the same thing. If you have more acidity though, you have to use a little less sulfur. It's volatile, so um, if you are sulfur sensitive, cool climate white grapes, German Rieslings, can actually be very low in sulfur. Try try a test with those. If you get a headache the next day, you know, see if see if maybe that has some sort of Sulfur is also used for mildew control, just to tie it back. It's the number one most effective thing. Uh, just like everything else, mildew is adapting and changing. There are at least, like they're starting to isolate mildew DNA, and I guess there are three types of grapevine resistance, and now there are all these experiments going on with like sparking the grapevine's own disease resistance to it. Really interesting research. Like getting enzymes up and running, then the grapevine fights it off for two weeks stuff like that. And just like the whole glyphosate roundup thing, um, weeds were becoming resistant to it anyway. And these these things adapt and change, and they're out there. Uh, there are other options with mildew. There are little chemical things that are really benign. We really like mineral oil, which smothers it. Um, it works really well. It's an eradicant and it's super gentle. You just can't use it when it's hot because you'll burn the leaves off. Spray, yeah. You can either have an ATV with a or a tractor with a spray unit on the back. If you're really small, there are even backpacks that'll shoot out a little poof of sulfur dust. That's what we were doing in the 70s and 80s. Uh, you can, you know, use like a weed spray almost if you have a hundred vines and that's it. You don't need a tractor, just a light mist. Um, there's a lot of canopy management that comes with mildew control too. You want to have sunlight. Sunlight's an antidote to it. Uh, so if the canopy is too dark, then you're culturing mildew in there. Uh, but then if you overexpose the fruit, it'll burn later in summer. So there's, and Randy Craig will talk about this as well, especially here in Lake County. It's cool now, but up until a few days ago we were, we were nudging a hundred every day, and we get a lot of blue sky sunlight here. So if you have just raw exposed grapes, they'll, they'll be raising this really fast. And actually I've been I have a, a nature break. I take a nap, when I drive up, I've been track every day. I take a picture of this row of grapevines, and I was complaining in the spring about how they were overexposed and they were taking leaves off and cutting off the little bits of the bunches, and now they're total raisins and they're not going to pick them for another three weeks. That's how you get some of those really ripe, velvety, unctuous characters out of that so I'm just like what are you
2: doing but
0: you know that's going to be part of a 50 lot blend and that's going to be the right stuff the Mm leaner stuff and it it all has a virtue somewhere Um, for small wineries most people just buy grapes on the market you can go to a couple websites that have a thousand listings for grapes right now the market is kind of down and flooded at the moment so prices are dropping a lot of stuff is available out there um, you want to be a home winemaker? You can buy a ton of good quality Cabernet for a thousand dollars, make sixty cases of wine. It's a pretty good price. Could be worse. But the vineyard cycle is just one one part of everything. Um, just a quick overview of winery stuff. Then we can take a break. Um, and I don't know why they're filtering stuff before they're aging here. We don't do that. that looks, I don't know what graphic artist put this. Be. I should have looked at it better before I threw it in. But harvesting grapes, you're immediately confronted with a couple of choices. Are you making a white wine? If if you're doing that, generally you will instantly press the grapes, separate them from their skins, and then start fermentation. That's how you make a crisp Sauvignon Blanc or Chardonnay. Sometimes people will do a little bit of what's called skin contact and they let it sit with the seeds and skins and it picks up some of that polyphenolic stuff and you got bigger body. Doesn't work for all grapes, works for some. Sauvignon Blanc gets really weird when you do that. you got to either do it really quick or let it go for 10 days and make it like a red wine. Anything in between can be kind of challenging. Um, and then with reds, uh, so you're crushing them, are you taking the stems off? So that you just have the grape berries lots of places that make bigger fruitier wines they don't want to crush the grapes they want to delicately pick every single berry off the stem and convey it without pumping it so it's all whole perfect caviar looking berries in the tank and let those slowly sort of sink under their own weight and start fermentation Uh, there's a method called carbonic maceration where you just gently dump all the whole bunches with stems into a tank, throw in dry ice, and then they ferment within the berries. Yeah, it's very, like, bubblegum fruity. Uh, Beaujolais Nouveau. You have seen that. That's made in that way. And you get this, like, hyper-fruity thing that's really fascinating for, like, three sips. And then... And then but it's kind of in style now. Uh, there are some grapes, like Carignan, which are... Carignan always tastes to me like a raspberry crossed with an aluminum baseball bat.
2: Like it has a weird metallic,
0: that's just, it's not my thing. Um, but if you make that in that carbonic way, then it's like raspberry jam and very soft and, and you get something that doesn't have much of that tannin, doesn't really have much of a metallic finish. So there are lots of different things you can do. This is where the winemakers, like this time of year, we get excited because, you know, I've got a sheet of paper you gotta do 20% whole cluster on this, which is when you put you just dump the bin the grapes into the bin you stomp on them break most of them and then you wait uh, that's very in style right now, it's sort of a Burgundian tradition, very French uh, it's a little bit francophilic, it's a little bit overdone, gets stem characters that work with some grapes, but not all grapes. Um, are you doing an extended fermentation where you like have everything all together in the tank, all the sugar ferments out, uh, it's like 15 days in, the wine is completely dry, and most of us would say, okay, it's time to press it, separate it from the skins, put it in the barrel, and then uh, a winemaker says, no, 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 90 days. So then they gas the tank and they let everything just sit there and keep extracting more and more and more. It works with Cabernet, it doesn't work with a lot of other grapes. And I've got a couple of barrels of experiments of 100 day that I don't know what I'm going to do with. <laughs> Did not turn out as expected, uh, despite being a similar grape to Cabernet. So, trials, and live and learn. Um, so red wine or white, if it's a white wine, if you want a crisp like Sauvignon Blanc, ferment it. You've already taken the skins away. You need to transfer it from tank to tank once or twice, and then you just let it age in stainless steel or some sort of wood breathes. Slowly, but it does breathe. So red wine has tannin, needs a little bit of air. Um, that, that time in barrel is very important. And there are plastic containers that can, they can simulate wood aging, but there's something kind of magical about what a barrel does. I also hate barrels because they're a microbial nightmare and they're like the worst part of winemaking. You can't get inside of a barrel. Um, I feel a lot better about it if you could. But they're also 50 bucks when they're used and they do a great job. So they're sort of the backbone of the industry for red wine. But if you're doing a- New
2: barrels?
0: Uh, No, used barrels. New French barrels are over a thousand. Yeah, well it's, you know, you're killing trees. And there's a lot of waste. But fortunately, most of that waste now becomes oak chips, which then get recycled into like a more affordable wine thing. Um, yeah, but barrels were not always the norm. That's a very Bordeaux thing. In Italy, they all used huge Slovenian oak tanks that were 80 years old. Here in California, we were using redwood tanks.
2: Uh,
0: if anybody's heard of Ravenswood... So producer. Mm-hmm. You can find them at 7 Eleven now. They were bought by a big company. Uh Joel Peterson, who started that, he kept his redwood tanks from the 80s and he's now has a little label of like $50 really cool bottles made in those old Ravenswood redwood oak fermenters. And it's cool. There's a there's a weirdness to them. It's very particular. It's a cool historical project. Um but in general Like, whites, there are a lot of work up front. They sit in a tank for a while, and then there are a lot of work at the end getting them into a bottle, because you want them to be clear, you want them to be clean, you gotta go through filtration, you want them generally to be heat stable, because there are proteins in there, and then you want them to be cold stable, which is when you get the little crystals in the bottom of the bottle. And each of those is a different process. I like white wines. I hate making them because I think they actually should be more expensive than red wines, which kind of make themselves. Once the fermentation is done, you can leave it in barrel for two years and then just bottle it, and it'll generally be pretty stable, unless there's something microbial going on with it. Then. White wines are a lot of work, but, but they're more—they're a little more like production line ish so you don't get as much money. For which is kind of a crime, because there are some amazing white wines out there. And there are some that skip some of those steps and aren't filtered. And um, Actually, the wine in front of you is unfined, unfiltered, but still pretty clear. And there's nothing that would make you look at this on a shelf and say, mm-hmm. something's wrong with this. So you can do it. You can do it. But if I was shipping 20 truckloads to Miami in the middle of summer, I would probably want to make sure that it was heat-stable and stuff like that. There are virtues to different different styles of processing. and But white wine, red wine, interrelated but separate techniques. This is a more detailed flow chart. Uh, this isn't in your thing, but a couple people in the last group really wanted a copy of this, and I can direct you to the, wo- the website. This is actually more honest as to the choices. Now, we don't all have this kind of equipment. Like, sometimes, it, you know, you got one tank, what are you gonna do? Um, But this gives you an idea. There are a lot of choices that can be made along the process. The weird thing is that if you're trying to make good wine, the wine remembers everything you do to it. So like two years down the road, you're like, oh, I shouldn't have moved it from barrel to barrel that third time, because now it's slightly oxidized around the edges, there's some molasses character came up. Or I should have given it more air early on. Work with those tannins, get let them gobble up a little more oxygen, get softer. That's that's a mistake I've made several times, not reading a vintage properly. Um, yeah, a lot of choices though, and this is a good time of year to be to be here. You will see wineries in in action, wine being pumped, fermentations happening, grapes being crushed. There's a lot of expensive Italian machinery doing that. Um, that is something the Europeans are pretty good at. Uh, you know, we're all using Italian decanters. Ours may be only this big, and steels will be half the size of this room, but they're made by the same company. So there's something to that—that that length of history there. Um, should we take a short break before we get into actual tasting?
2: Yes. <laughs>